Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Christopher Coyne, a professor of economics at West Virginia University and a research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. He is the author of After War, The Political Economy of Exporting Democracy. Chris, welcome to Econ Talk. Hi, Russ. How are you? Thank you for having me. Now, our topic for today is your book, After War. You apply the economic way of thinking to the challenge of post-war reconstruction, particularly the attempts of the United States to change institutions and create democracy where there was not democracy before. Now, after the military part of the war in Iraq ended, it became clear that the post-war, the after-war part of the struggle was going to be the more challenging part of the U.S. Uh, mission, and it has not gone particularly particularly well. And in the early days of that attempts in Iraq to recreate, uh, to create a democracy there, many optimists pointed to Japan and Germany as countries where, despite uh, seeming challenges and barriers, democracy was successfully implemented under U.S. supervision or actual uh, coercion. Uh, and they thought, well, maybe Iraq will work out similarly. But as you point out, those are just two data points, and there are other examples of reconstruction the U.S. has tried that have not gone well. So start by talking about some of those. Well, I actually be- begin the book by, by all, going back all the way to uh, one of the first foreign interventions that the U.S. undertook, which was Cuba. And uh, between 1898 and uh, the early 1920s, the United States intervened in Cuba three times. You're not, first, you're not talking about the Bay of Pigs? No, no. Um, but the first occupation was under uh, President McKinley in 1898, um, and I think that lasted until 1902. Um, and... Uh, we, we sent military troops down to basically overcome civil uh, unrest uh, and to create stability in political institutions and to protect American interests. And uh, after leaving 1902, we came back in 1906 uh, and stayed there, I think, until 1909. And then I think 1917 to 1922 was the final um, uh, military occupation. In each case, we went in precisely because there was instability in political institutions. Uh, and, we, and we attempted, or U.S. troops attempted to create some kind of permanent stability, uh, and, and it's well known how those turned out. Uh, we, you know, Batista, uh, who I think uh, was in control from 1940 to 1959, and then, of course, Fidel Castro, um, 1959 to very recently. Um, and, and it's of course, it's very interesting, while Iraq and Afghanistan are going on, Cuba's in the news again with, with Castro. Um, so, if anything, it gives us an opportunity to, to reflect back uh, to these, these early interventions and to look at what, what failed there and, and the outcomes, because, of course, uh, Cuba has uh, suffered under illiberal institutions for a lot, very long period of time. So the United States made a significant investment in trying to change that and uh, presumably got very little for the, in return. Uh, you could also you could uh, actually argue I, I believe that it, that they got not not even that they got very little that they actually made things worse um, and that was just um, what happened you know, in Cuba. Um, well, I mean, uh, we we failed basically. What we did in in all the cases was put regimes, and we've done this throughout um, Latin America in general. We've put regimes in place which are friendly to U.S. interests, both political and business interests, even though in many cases they're very illiberal regimes. And of course, the the, the illiberal, contra- illiberal. Yes, yeah. excuse me. 
Uh, and of course, the tension here is that at least in rhetoric, um, you know, our, our political leaders and policymakers talk about the United States wanting to um, spread liberty and democracy and allow other people around the world to engage in self-determination. Uh, but when we undertake these efforts and attempt to pick winners and, and establish regimes that, that we believe are good or that benefit the United States, uh, oftentimes that comes at the expense of, of the citizens uh, in the country itself. And I think Cuba is a perfect example of that. Um, it's, it's led to subsequent in- interventions. Uh, we've attempted to isolate ourselves from them. Um, and, and this has further contributed to the, um, I would argue, to the um, great costs that have been imposed upon Cuban citizens. Well, there are two possible themes here that, that I'd like to keep keep separate. One is that uh, the this is just an example of the law of unintended consequences. The other possibility, of course, is that this is the law of intended consequences. As you point out, it's possible that the public rhetoric was that we were trying to create freedom and democracy, but in fact, our goal was simply to put in place someone who was friendly to the United States and we weren't so concerned about the citizens. I want to stick with the possibility, which may be uh, overly naive or optimistic, that often the uh, motivation might be at least the uh, liberation of the people and that the uh, post-war occupation or the occupation to start with is uh, is actually to export democracy because I think that makes it a little more um, interesting. It certainly is the case that many Americans are hopeful – that in Iraq, uh, that the regime that, that emerges at some point will, eat, will not just be friendly to the United States, but will also treat its citizens better than Saddam Hussein did. And certainly the leaders of America would, would be happy with that, although they may be willing to accept uh, a second best solution where it's simply the uh, friendly to the United States part. But I want, I want to stick with that possibility that, at least for now, that, that American intervention might lead conceivably to liberty and democracy. Why has it been so unsuccessful in Iraq? What so far, what are the incentives that are facing uh, the Iraqi people that are causing things to go so badly or that are being imposed by the United States so badly? Sure. Well, I mean, you raise a a very important point just to kind of put this in context, which is this idea of incentives. Uh, And and really, as an economist, we always think in terms of incentives. And basically, an incentive in the broadest sense is, is a factor uh, that kind of provides a, a motivation for a particular course of action. So one of our core, our core assumptions in economics is that people respond to incentives. When you raise the benefit of a certain behavior, people engage in more of it. When the benefit falls, they engage in less of that behavior. And likewise, when costs rise, um, when the cost associated with the behavior increases, people will engage in less of it and vice versa. So, so really, the reconstruction process is all about incentives because um, you know, occupiers are in the country, and they're trying to create a set of rules which provide incentives for citizens um, to continue uh, within a liberal democratic set of institutions. And when those incentives are absent, uh, basically the reconstructed institutions will unravel. So we can analyze this all in terms of incentives. Do citizens within Iraq or any country being occupied for that matter have the incentive to pursue ends that align uh, with liberal democracy? And to the extent they do, we'll see success. And to the extent they don't, they'll see failure. Uh, we'll see failure, excuse me. So in the case of Iraq, uh, the citizens uh, have faced numerous incentives which, which cut against our end 
uh, goal of establishing liberal democracy. Uh, the most obvious one, the one that's, that's talked about the most in the press, is, is just the historical experiences of the various groups. Um, and, of course, we always... Um, talk about uh, the Kurds, the Sunni, and, and the Shia, uh, because those are the, the easy categories to talk about, but it's, it's a lot more complex on the ground. There's various subgroups um, within those um, broader categories, and they have historical tensions and conflicts which have lasted uh, for uh, centuries. Uh, we're seeing this now in Basra, right? We're seeing um, the Shia, a lot of infighting between the Shia, and the number of deaths there has increased um, drastically over the past month. So there's these historical experiences, and the, and the issue here, of course, is when you don't get along with other parties, uh, it's very hard to form some kind of cooperative solution to the larger metagame, if you want to think of it that way, of establishing liberal democracy in Iraq, the, the nation. So one point which, which you make in the book is that the transaction costs, the bargaining costs, the negotiation costs are, are much higher than they might otherwise be because the groups that are doing that negotiating don't trust each other. So it's very difficult, given the historical animosities, uh, it's very difficult because there's a puzzle here, which, which you talk about, and I, I just want to lay this out for the listeners because I think it's such an interesting way to think about it. Ideally, we like to think, and I think it's correct, that if we could move toward, uh, if Iraq could move toward a liberal democracy with uh, a uh, decentralized market-based economy, that the pie to be divided among the citizens would get dramatically larger, that each person would find themselves better off with freedom and choice and opportunity. The problem, of course, is that you're not quite sure what your, whether that's going to happen, and you're not quite sure what your share of that pie is going to be down the road. And if there's some rules that have to be established in advance that set that division up, the fighting over that is going to potentially cause people to forego the gains that they might otherwise have. Uh, that's exactly right. So, so the, 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 the way to think about this is, and the way I, and that's kind of a thought experiment I lay it out, is imagine the occupier of the United States, even though there's other countries contributing as well, but the U.S. is kind of driving it, sitting around the table, and they're kind of the mediator, and they bring all the, the relevant leaders of the parties to this bargaining table, and they say, okay, look, uh, we can all be made better off here if we can come, come to some kind of cooperative agreement. We know what, what it takes to become wealthy. We know we need some kind of form of private property rights, respect for political rights um, and individual rights, some kind of rule of law um, that constrains uh, politicians. So if we can all agree to some set of rules and, 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 and agree to kind of coordinate around them so that they're sustainable, we can get really good outcomes. Look, you lived under Saddam Hussein. He didn't invest in infrastructure. He coerced you to do things you otherwise wouldn't have done. Here's a wonderful opportunity to kind of shift that equilibrium to something that will generate a higher standard of living for you. And on the face of it, of course, that's a very noble goal. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Uh, but the issue, of course, uh, is that when you get these parties around the table, um, they don't want to negotiate with, with other parties precisely because of this issue of trust and credible commitment. Uh, they don't view the other parties as being credible or trustworthy. Uh, and on top of that, they've, in many cases, the various groups have, have coerced others uh, very violently in many cases at various parts throughout the history of the country. So in some sense, you can't blame them for, for, for not wanting to talk to the or, or, or negotiate in good faith with the other parties, uh, let alone come to some kind of long-term agreement, uh, because uh, there's this issue of, well, uh, look, you've wronged me in the past, so there's that issue in itself. I don't, I don't, I w I don't want to 
basically negotiate with my enemy. And on top of it, there's this issue of credible commitment. Why would they possibly believe that the agreement, even if they are able to strike one, is binding after the occupiers, who are kind of the enforcer of the contract, if you want to think about it that way, um, will exit the country eventually? So I guess, you know, just as an aside, John McCain's uh, promise to stay for 100 years, uh, a promise he won't keep, of course, uh, or future American presidents won't necessarily keep, is at least imaginably raising the probability that there'd be trust. But the problem I see, and, I, and again, you talk about in the book, is that even if you do trust each other, which they don't, but even if they do trust each other, you have additional problems because uh, people are fighting over who's going to get the bigger share, and they're willing to use uh, threats of violence and actual violence to keep people from cooperating. That's right. Well, there's two, there's two interesting issues here, just to, uh, to go to your aside very quickly. The, the, the occupiers, and I, I point this out, are, are in a kind of a bind, because on the one hand, you're exactly right. If they did stay, if they said, look, we're staying till this is done, 100 years, 200 years, whatever it is, and it's actually credible, then that could, be, um, could signal to the, the indigenous parties, the citizens of the country, that, uh, look, it's gonna be, there is going to be a third-party enforcer. But as I point out, that creates a whole new set of problems, which is um, part of the conflict, of course, is because the U.S. Um, said, look, we're liberating you, we're allowing you to engage in self-determination, and uh, we're not occupiers, right? Eventually, when we went in, that's what the, the rhetoric was. We're not here to occupy you, we're here to liberate you. Um, and, and the problem is, the longer we stay and get directly involved in political, economic, and social outcomes. Um, the indigenous citizens don't view us as basically a benevolent liberator. They view us as basically um, you know, undertaking activities which benefit the United States at the cost of them. Uh, so there's that trade-off there. The longer you stay, you can enforce contracts or serve as a third-party enforcer, but at the same time, you also kind of can't at the same time say, well, look, we're here to liberate you and allow you to gauge in self-determination, but if we don't like the outcome, we're going to change it at, um, at the point of a gun if necessary. Um, so, um, but, but part of the, I think, part of the rhetoric that's going on, which I think is um, unproductive, uh, as opposed to the incentive insights that you bring to the, to the table, part of the unproductive rhetoric is that when you use the word occupier, uh, it, it can mean something neutral, it can mean something coercive, and it can mean something exploitive. Um, it does not appear to me that the U.S. is exploiting Iraq, either its people or its resources, the way we think of an oppressive occupation. And I think what people see when they see what's going on in the news, when you see car bombs going off and people being killed, either Americans or, or citizens, in the name of, of getting the Americans out of the country, I think people have this idea that it must be oppressive, but of course it doesn't have to be oppressive. It could merely mean that the people doing the bombing think that they'll do better in a world where things are more chaotic than in a world where the United States is uh, controlling things. And I think that is the issue for the credible commitment. The U.S. people are not going to tolerate being in Iraq for 100 years. Uh, they're not going to tolerate for more than a, another year or two especially if they're deaths. And I think, I assume, and this is what I want you to comment on, I assume the people that are behind the terrorism in Iraq now are looking forward not to Iraq being free of the United States because the United States is harming the citizens of Iraq, 
but they want Iraq to be free of the United States so that they can have a more dominant role than they would otherwise have. And that set of incentives is um, going to be very destructive. That's exactly right. No, you're, you're, um, you're totally right, which is um, basically they, they want, well, I mean, terrorism and something, and there's many different, look, there's an ongoing and, and, and very large literature on the motivations behind terrorism, and I'm not saying this is the only factor, but I think that the one you point out, which is if, if you don't feel like you're part of the game, if you want to think about it that way, or that you're going to get a, what you consider either a fair share of the, of the pie or if the role, your role in terms of power in, in the new Iraq, if you want to think about it that way, um, is, is large enough or, or how, what you perceive it should be, one response to that is to, um, to fight the occupation. And one form of fighting the occupation um, and, and the attempt to reconstruct the country is, is to engage in terrorism. Um, so that's definitely part of it. Again, I'm, I don't want to claim that's the only factor because I think there's others as well. Um, that, that are influencing and the, the terrorism in Iraq. But uh, this is definitely part of it. And, uh, you know, on top of it, there's this whole issue of, of perception. Um, and, and as you mentioned, rightfully so, there's different types of occupations. There's different motivations. There's different ends. Uh, but, but there's this issue of perception as well. And, and in many cases, I think, how, how the U.S. views or perceives the occupation is very different uh, than how the Iraqi citizens view the occupation, as well as other countries around the world. Excellent point. Um, and, and this is a, a key issue. I, and, uh, you know, uh, part of the problem is um, policymakers and American citizens, we view ourselves as being benevolent. And in many cases, we are. Going back to our, our, one of our initial discussion uh, points was this issue of, well, look, if you can coordinate around these liberal institutions, uh, we'll get good outcomes. I mean, who doesn't like private property? Who doesn't like wealth? Right, these are good. Most people would say these are good things. Self-determination, um, and, and, representative right, government. Most exactly people right. like the idea of them, at least. That's right. And 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 we view. When I say we, I'm I'm referring to the United States in the broadest sense. We view ourselves as bringing about good ends, and and that's noble in some sense, uh, right? I mean, we're trying to get good stuff here. Uh, but in many cases, the Iraqis and people in Iran and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and you can go on and on, don't necessarily view it in that manner. So there's this disconnect between perceptions, which has, uh, in many cases, negative, um, negative outcomes, because what we perceive as being good, they perceive as being bad, uh, and so on. Well, I'm just fascinated by this, um, the role of fear uh, when people are willing to use violence, uh, both good guys and bad guys. The, the incentives change dramatically. Um, so cooperating with the occupier uh, can be socially uh, rewarding or socially punished by your fellow citizens. It can be seen as a badge of honor or a badge of shame. Right. Obviously, we the occupier wants it to be a badge of honor, but the domestic, as you point out, the perception may be that it's a badge of shame, and that, that badge of shame can be uh, created by uh, social norms, cultural responses, or death, <laughs> uh, right. violence and, and murder uh, for people who cooperate. So why don't we turn to the cheerful story? Actually, before we turn to the cheerful stories, is anything going well in Iraq? Um, well, it, I mean, you can argue, and I've heard the argument made that Saddam Hussein is gone, so you could view that as a good um, in, in itself. Um, it probably is. Okay, so that, that would be one. Um, and um, of course, I didn't, but hang on, I don't. I don't mean to ask. Did anything good come of this? I want to ask: Is there anything? Is there any source of optimism for um, the creation of liberal democracy in in Iraq? In the in the following sense, um, 
as you point out, we have very different factions. They don't trust each other. Their incentives to cooperate are small. They impose social costs on those who do cooperate or physical costs. Um, on the surface, it looks like a very bad uh, prognosis for the future. Are there any positive signs? I personally would contend that we will not see a liberal democracy in the form that we want. And when I say we, again, I mean the, the West, the United States, um, in, in any time in the near future, not, not in your life or my life. Um, I think the best we can hope for is some kind of stability um, that will emerge um, after, after conflict ends and kind of the relative um, power and relations between the groups become clear. Um, then you might see some kind of cooperative equilibrium um, uh, emerging. Uh, uh, but it, it's, I'm going to guess it's not going to be one that we like as the United States that we view as a good outcome. Definitely not compared to what our initial goals were when we went in. Um, I also envision us being involved in some way, shape, or form in Iraq for centuries to come. Um, we're going to, and um, it doesn't have to be um, um, continuous. We, we're going to have troops there for a while in some shape or form, uh, and then even if we exit completely, uh, there'll be reason to, I'm sure, to um, re-enter it sometime in, in the future. And it's important to recognize, of course, that the United States, not too long ago, you know, was supportive of, of Saddam Hussein uh, when they were battling Iran. You know, there's the famous video of Donald Rumsfeld meeting with Saddam Hussein. Uh, the United States provided funding and arms to Osama bin Laden um, when they were fighting um, the Soviets. The enemy uh, of my... Enemy is my friend is the, That's exactly is the right. pragmatic argument there. That's exactly right. And this, this goes to kind of the, the fundamental knowledge problem that policymakers face. What, what looks as a problem today um, is not a problem tomorrow. Or if you intervene to fix that problem tomorrow, when I say tomorrow, I don't mean literally tomorrow. I mean next year, a decade, two decades. It creates a whole new set of problems, which in turn requires subsequent interventions. And the process goes on precisely because of limited knowledge and unintended consequences. And also the public choice issues that you mentioned in the book that we haven't talked about, the incentives for the politicians. Uh, American politicians are going to have a very tough time exiting from Iraq because they're afraid of the political cost of what's going to happen right away. They'll also have a hard time staying there because of the political cost. So there will be – I I think your seesaw or in and out um, forecast is, is very uh, possible. And your claim of centuries seems ludicrous until you think about the Cuba story. That's right. Where – We've been involved there for centuries, and we will be involved again. Uh, right now, we're involved in a relatively minor way with the boycott, which I think is a mistake. I agree. And has punished the citizens at, uh, to no benefit to us or anyone else. Well, maybe to Castro's benefit for a few years, a few decades, because he could blame stuff on us. That's right. Um, but as you point out, that we didn't solve it in 1898, and we didn't solve it in 1909, and we didn't solve it in 1960, and I uh, – Doubt we'll solve it in 2012 or whenever is the next uh, episode. But let's let's turn to a more cheerful story, uh, which you tell very well in the book. L let's talk about why Japan and Germany turned out differently. So here were examples where at the time, in, in both cases, there did not seem to be any cause for optimism. It looked as bleak, at least initially, as it might have looked uh, initially in Iraq. Uh, we looked at Japan – Japan was an incredibly militaristic culture uh, with no democratic leanings, had an uh, emperor at the top of the hierarchy. Germany was a democracy in name, but only for a very brief period during the Weimar Republic. Post-World War I was quickly uh, turned back into an uh, autocracy under Hitler, a dictatorship. At the time, in 1945, it would seem extremely unlikely – 
that uh, liberal democracy uh, could be exported to those two countries under U.S. occupation, and yet it did happen. So talk about what went right. Let's start with uh, Japan. How did Japan turn out as well as it did? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a complex issue, so I'll try to highlight um, some of the, the main factors that I think contributed to success. Uh, the, f- the first one to keep in mind is that um, both Japan and Germany were, were relatively developed countries. So they had what political scientists talk about when they say, look, they have, this country has a national identity. People would identify themselves as being a Japanese citizen. Um, so that was the first thing. There was, there was none of this internal conflict between groups or subgroups within, um, within those broader groups. So that was, that was the first issue. There was a Japan, and, and there was readily identifiable citizens. So that's, that's the first issue to keep in mind. The second is that in contrast to our more modern military efforts, Japan and Germany were both international wars. There were clear um, nation-states engaged in a conflict, and there was a clear winner. I mean, we thoroughly defeated them. Um, they surrendered. Uh, so uh, there was an official surrender by the emperor, and the U.S. entered as occupiers. So when MacArthur enters the country, it's clear that the United States is, is in charge. They're occupying um, the, the country. There's no, there was discussion of liberating them and, and making them free, but the goal, it was clear that we were in charge. What we said went. So that's, that's the one issue um, to, 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 to keep in mind here. The, the citizens of Japan knew they were in a war, they knew they had lost, and they knew they were being occupied. Um, and, uh, and as you point out, the state of their economy and uh, body politic was devastated that's right. by that war. Uh, psychological devastation and as well as physical devastation, which is the other interesting th- thing as well. If you read accounts, um, you know, and this goes back to our discussion about perceptions, many Japanese citizens viewed us as, as when we came in, they were scared of us. They thought we were going to be extremely coercive um, and abusive to them. Um, and and rightfully so after the war, right? It's not like they had interacted a lot with Americans. They just they had the information that their government gave them and saw the war going on. So of course they view us as as a course of enemy. And uh, you know for the most part we were we treated them pretty well. The United States treated them well. We we tried to provide food to them. Now we had problems um, with food delivery services, but we still attempted to do this. For the most part, we respected um, we respected their rights um, and uh, their property. And uh, and while, while we were going through the reconstruction, and there wasn't this issue, there was no insurgency, there was no the U.S. troops did not have to worry about um, you know getting shot at or blown up as as they carried out their mission, uh, and of course that makes it a lot easier to engage in reconstruction because uh, and and this is one of the kind of just tying it back to Iraq now one of the things a lot of people look at is the amount of resources, dollar amounts, the number of new buildings and schools and hospitals. And, and, and it's not to say that this infrastructure is not important. Ultimately, it is to, to development. But it's only, it only works. Infrastructure can only be used successfully if there's some notion of cooperation and peace. In other words, a school doesn't matter if it can be blown up at any point or if kids can't attend school because they're worried about being killed, which is what happened in Iraq, but didn't happen in Japan. So, so the kind of the way I, I think about it, and I think I use this example in the book, is to think about Japan as, as a firm. Okay, so think about Microsoft, for instance. Microsoft has a beautiful building. Uh, the employees go uh, every day, and, and, and the culture of Microsoft is really what makes it the company. Imagine that the employees go home at night, and the Microsoft building, the headquarters, burns down. Reconstructing Microsoft would be a purely... 
uh, an issue of resources, monetary resources. You could rebuild the building, the employees could go back to work, and you'd still have Microsoft, precisely because of the employees and the culture that make it what it is. That is the equivalent of Japan and Germany. Their building, if you want to go back to the Microsoft office, their building had been burned down and we just had to rebuild it. Now, if you built a beautiful Microsoft building in the middle of Iraq right now and said, okay, you now have Microsoft, please use it and deliver all the good things that Microsoft was uh, delivers, excuse me, the citizens wouldn't know what to do with it. And they wouldn't know what to do with it because the very thing that makes Microsoft what it is, the people, the human capital, the culture of the company, is absent um, in Iraq. Uh, so, it's, uh, so focusing on purely monetary resources, on humanitarian aid, on the number of buildings reconstructed, uh, reconstructed this is wrong-headed because it neglects the underlying factors that, that allows that infrastructure to be used in an effective manner. In Japan, and Germany as well, it was largely an issue of literally rebuilding stuff. It had been devastated physically, and we just needed to rebuild buildings and schools and homes and other types of infrastructure. And the underlying culture and informal institutions were already in place that allowed that infrastructure to be utilized in an um, effective manner. Well, that's easy to say now. Let, let's go back to 1945, because it very easily could – you say there was no um, attacks – on the occupying United States uh, troops or organizers or rebuilders, but there could have been. Japan, again, was a very militaristic uh, society at the time. It had a great culture of militarism. Uh, there were a lot of people still left alive who harbored lots of resentment against the United States. And it's imaginable that the same issues of cooperation versus conflict could have existed in 1945, and I'm sure to some extent they did, that, that players in the Japanese economy and in the Japanese body politic were certainly unsure of what their role would be in the post-war world and how they would interact with these new institutions, because it's not just the buildings, right? We don't want to just focus on the buildings that were rebuilt in Japan. It was much more than that. It was the creation of new institutions and political rules. So given those political rules, clearly some people are going to be very uncertain and perhaps uh, pessimistic about where they were going to end up in the new hierarchy. Why didn't they um, try to disrupt it in the way that has happened in Iraq? No, this is an excellent point. Let me just step back for a moment. I don't, I don't mean to make the, the reconstruction sound as if it was uh, very uh, a simple task or purely just dumping money and then you got good outcomes. You know, when the U.S. Uh, initially went in, they exactly as you pointed out, one of their main fears, if you if you look at the historical dis uh, accounts of, of the pre-occupation discussion, was exactly the point you raised, which is there'd be dispersed members of the military around the country and that they there might be an insurgency. This was a very real threat um, when we entered the country. Uh, and, of course, there were protests about, as I mentioned before, there was problems with food delivery and, and some of the citizens held protests. They were largely peaceful, but they held them nonetheless. Um, so these, these were real issues. Uh, the important point in, in Japan, which I, I attempt to point out in the, in the book, is that uh, there, were, there were already uh, national institutions in place which had carried over or passed through from the pre-war period to the post-war period. So what happens basically is, and, and, and MacArthur was brilliant from this standpoint, he realized very quickly that in order to overcome the trust issues and the credibility issues that you and I discussed earlier, he needed to utilize established mechanisms of credibility. 
So the first thing he does when he gets there, or one of the first things he does, is, is go uh, to the uh, emperor's palace and get his picture taken with the emperor. And that's published in newspapers. And uh, when you had your picture taken with the emperor, it um, gave you a um, status of um, not equal footing to the emperor, but you were viewed as being a leader because you were um, in, in the presence of the emperor. And of course, average citizens didn't get to see, let alone be in the direct presence of the emperor. Um, and uh, MacArthur does this, even though, by the way, the United States citizens, I think it was about 70 to 80 percent, wanted the emperor tried for war crimes and, and executed. executed. Yeah. That's right. And MacArthur said, no, we need him. He's going to be central to our reconstruction effort, precisely because of the issue of legitimacy and credibility. So he, he utilizes the emperor to um, implement many of his reforms. Uh, he basically sends the emperor out on a, on a kind of a public relations tour around the country um, to visit with citizens and, and discuss the goals of the occupation. Uh, and the argument in the book that this is, is that this at least assisted in facilitating cooperation among, among the citizens. Um, the other thing which MacArthur did a very, a very good job of is um, there's always this discussion of how MacArthur wrote the Constitution. And it is true he did play a key ro- a role in writing the new Constitution. He wasn't the only person involved, but he passed it through uh, the Diet, the Japanese legislature, and got their approval. He accepted, I believe, it somewhere in the area of 80 to 90% of the suggested changes and revisions they had. Um, so he had the input from um, existing political leaders uh, and, um, and, and incorporated that into the Reconstruction. And what this did, in my view at least, is to increase the legitimacy and the credibility uh, of the efforts. It wasn't, even though we we're imposing it upon them, we utilized existing institutions, uh, which, which lowered the transaction costs, if you want to think about it that way, of coordinating people around a cooperative outcome. And keeping the emperor alive was a huge roll of the dice for MacArthur, clearly and a very high-risk strategy because it could have worked the other way. He could have become a rallying point for uh, the dissent and uh, insurgency that people were worried about. And I'm sure at the time that was the the trade-off that they were concerned with. Yes, that's right. I mean, there was this concern. And the other thing was just going back to the the fact that the Japanese Reconstruction General was not – you know, it wasn't always smooth and easy. There was a, a communist, and this goes back to your point about other political elements, there was a communist element as well. Um, that, uh, there was that political element that wanted a say um, in, in, the, in the New Japan and, and, and was a real threat. And, of course, the United States was very concerned with um, the, ri- the rise of, of, of a communist sect that would ultimately take over um, the country one, or, or at least strongly influence the, the politics and, and economics of the country once they had exited. Um, so there was that, that issue going on as well. Um, and and you're exactly right. There was there was the potential, at least, that the emperor could have um, kind of, if you want to think about it, in terms of defecting from what MacArthur wanted and actually hurting um, the Reconstruction. Um, but the fact that that didn't happen, um, I, I wouldn't say it's it's luck, um, but uh, it is in some sense. Uh, it could have swung the, the yeah. entire Reconstruction in the other direction. Because on the surface, the Iraqi story looks somewhat similar, right? Uh, they get a constitution. Uh, America, I assume, wrote most of it, but it did go through some sort of representative body that approved it, which would seem to be an encouraging sign. So what's the difference in the two cases? Well, I mean, the first difference is just the fact of, of you know, the, the Japanese citizens versus Iraqi citizens. And, and it's true there's Iraqi citizens, but in Iraq, people tend to view themselves within their group or subgroup as compared to viewing themselves as being um, a member of a nation state. They view themselves as being a member of a nation state, but their primary identification is, with, is with kind of within their group, um, ethnic, religious, 
or subgroups. Um, so, so this goes back to the idea of, of, well, we all want different stuff. Is my group or subgroup really being represented? Am I really going to get a fair, fair shake here um, in, in the new reconstructed country? And is this thing going to be sustainable once the occupiers exit? Um, of course, remember that um, it was approved by a, by a representative body, but the the, the um, American occupier, yes, in Iraq, excuse me, I should clarify. Uh, but, uh, you know, the United States played a key role in selecting the members of that representative body. And, of course, this has always been an issue, is that the United States wants certain people um, on, on the representative committees in, in Iraq. Uh, they want to get rid of the members of the Baathist Party, right? That's one of the first things they do is get rid of uh, the members of the Baathist Party. And in some sense, the, the reasoning made sense, right? We can't tell who really supported Saddam Hussein and who didn't, so we'll wholesale kick all of them out. And that way I can be sure I get rid of all the, the people that truly supported him. And of course, there were significant costs to that as well. Um, and, and one of them is that now people were basically disenfranchised. They said, look, you're, you're saying we can engage in self-determination, you're liberating us, but now you're telling me I can't be part of the, the negotiations towards my own future country. Right? And, 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 and this, to a large extent, contributed to the insurgency and, and the suicide, um, suicide bombings um, and all the other conflict. And of course, in, our, in, our, in Japan, it was much more inclusive t- to a large extent because we utilized existing political institutions to implement um, our, our reconstruction, um, the goals of the reconstruction. And people viewed those as legitimate well before America got there. Right, well before the war, those were viewed as political, uh, legitimate political institutions. Is that true that the Diet is the Japanese legislative body had some independent power before the war? Um, well, During the war, their power their power was limited. It's not like it's not it's not nowhere near what what we have here in the United States. Um, it's so, um, but um, it was well esta- it was a well established institution which has a long history um, and was well known by the. Um, Japanese citizens. That's that's in some sense the key point. They knew what the legislature was. They knew what the who the emperor was and the role of the emperor. And uh, these weren't up for 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 questioning. It wasn't. Well, do I? Who's this emperor? Do I really know him? Do I trust him? What role does he play? These things were already established. So it was just a matter of um, what I call in the book. Instead of wholesale change and and, and um, reconstruction, it was kind of tinkering on the margins. It was utilizing existing mechanisms to, to kind of bring about the change we wanted. And, and it was just a lower cost effort from that standpoint. When I say cost in this case, I don't mean monetary cost. I mean cost in terms of effort to get the outcome we wanted. Just to clarify, you, you're not suggesting that, uh, that if we had spared Saddam Hussein from trial and execution and made him the uh, spokesperson for the new regime, the new Iraq, that it would have gone better. Uh, no, it would, not that it would have mirrored the Japanese uh, in the in the role of the emperor. No, not at all. I mean, uh, th- and this is an interesting contrast, right? It's an obvious contrast too. The emperor um, didn't need to uh, coercively coordinate the citizens of Japan, and, and Saddam Hussein. I mean, Iraq under Saddam Hussein was relatively peaceful inside the country. Um, now, of course, the interesting question is, well, how did he get that peace? Well, if you if you were a threat to peace or stability, I throw you in jail or kill you. Um, so that is one way of getting the people to coordinate is to threaten them with force. Um, I don't advocate that or think it's a very good means of um, of, of either um, getting people to cooperate or, or developing as a country. Uh, but that he was able to do that. Now, if we kept Saddam Hussein in power, it would have or tried to implement things, it would have been a, a nightmare on multiple margins um, because there were, there was large segments of the population 
that don't trust Saddam, didn't trust Saddam Hussein, right? And, and the only way he was able to get them to buy in when he was in power was at gunpoint. Uh, so it, wouldn't, it would have been a, a terrible idea. Whereas the emperor had the affection and respect of, of all the Japanese, I suspect. That's exactly right. Let's turn uh, to Germany. Germany was very different, but it turned out pretty well, too. What, was, what helped make Germany successful? Well, many of the same factors, the development issue, um, the fact that it was an international war, I think that's a very important point to keep in mind, especially, and we can come back to this in a little bit, little bit but in terms of current and future threats, this idea that there's not any real superpower that's a threat to us at the moment in terms of a nation state. Um, and that's important to keep in mind because Germany and, as I discussed, Japan were both clear um, enemies. There was, there was a national government that we were fighting uh, and, a, and a national government that we defeated. Uh, so when we occupied the country, there was a clear government that we were, we were taking over. Um, so very, and, there, and there's overlap between Japan and Germany. I mean, the details are different, but um, you know, the occupiers established a military government under Lucius Clay, and basically Clay is attempting to implement the reconstruction. Now, now one interesting point is that MacArthur had a lot more unilateral power in Japan um, than Clay had, um, and, and this is important because Clay ha- received a lot of influence from um, D.C., from Washington, D.C., from policymakers. And the argument I put forth in the book is that the reconstruction of Germany was successful not because of occupation, but despite it. And it's interesting because, of course, when we go into the country, the United States I'm talking about, we keep many of the economic controls that the Nazis had put in place, price controls, rationing schemes, um, and, and we don't allow the, the economy, basic market forces, to operate. We're doing the same thing in Iraq, is my understanding as well. We're not really uh... – we're supposedly exporting liberal democracy, which usually means bottom-up rather than top-down economic decision-making. But my understanding is we've done a lot of top-down economic decisions there. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And, and this, of course, is, a, is an inherent contradiction. As you point out, we're trying to export liberal democracy and freedom. But really what we're doing is engaging in um, central planning writ large, not just in the economy, of course, but over political and social institutions as well. So we're attempting basically to rationally construct a complex array of institutions uh, that can't possibly be constructed um, by by any foreign government, um, and and so in, in Germany uh, we get these these economic controls are maintained, and uh, Ludwig Erhard um, goes behind the back of Clay, and uh, and basically goes on the radio and lists the price controls, and and he knew he 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 knew uh, that that the economy was basically suffering because the, the economy didn't begin to recover. Uh, immediately after the occupation, and the reason why was because of these um, drags that were on the economy in the terms of controls and rations. Uh, and basically, Earhart goes on the radio and lists the controls. And in a funny story, Clay calls him into his office and kind of scolds him and says, "Why did you do that? You you know that the rules are such that you cannot make changes without the approval of the military government." And uh, Earhart responds and says, "Well, if I had told you and your men, you wouldn't have let me do it. You wouldn't have <laughs> let me remove the controls." And he knew basically that that the the occupiers didn't know what they were talking about when it came to economics, and that it, the quickest way, of course, to free up an economy and to get resources moving, to get them allocated to the most highly valued ends, is allow prices to to fluctuate, to allow so he, them to operate. He went on the radio and unilaterally uh, disbanded the price controls. He lifted. He said the price controls are no longer in effect. We are removing them. And of course, he was key in, in terms of um, 
basically being the advisor in terms of finance and economics to the occupation. So the occupation had brought him in as an advisor. And he had credibility. As and he had cre- right, right. And he understood econo- basic economics, too, which is always a plus. That's a plus. Yeah, yeah <laughs> especially for that role. Um, so he was, he was a key driver behind the, the opening of the economy. And basically, um, when, when the occupiers allowed uh, German citizens to um, engage in self-determination and to, um, to figure out what they wanted to do and, and allow them to do it, then the occupation and reconstruction worked. So it wasn't the central planning. A lot of people tend to perceive Japan and West Germany as examples of our ability to go into a country and centrally plan the um, liberal democratic institutions, both formal and informal. These are examples people say of us going in and writing this constitution, and it worked. Um, and uh, I don't think that's an example of our ability to centrally plan uh, liberal democracy. I think it's our ability to overthrow a regime, which we're very, relatively good at. Our military is the most powerful in the world. Uh, and uh, really, in, in, in both cases, it, it's our ability, in the case of Japan, to recognize um, in the importance of indigenous institutions and to utilize those in a manner that uh, allowed for success. And in Germany, uh, we didn't realize that. We actually slowed it up uh, by putting these drags on the economy, um, there was, if you, if you read historical accounts, there was massive bureaucracy uh, and bureaucratic problems in Germany. You had all this infighting uh, between, between government agencies and bureaus. And, and there's an important lesson here, of course, because when the United States goes into Iraq, um, I'm talking about the current um, occupation of Iraq, one of the things you see is massive infighting between bureaus and agencies, which continues to this very day. That's the now, public choice problem you identify in the book. Which I, talk about that. Yeah, it's ex- that's exactly right. And, and of course, when, when this happens in, in Iraq now, uh, people blame the Bush administration. They say the Bush administration did not plan, they didn't put enough thought into it, they didn't put enough effort into it. And that, my, that's one hypothesis. Another is that the various bureaus and agencies that are involved all wanted to be in charge or to get as big a cut of the pie, the reconstruction pie, as they could. And to understand this in the simplest sense, the public choice model of bureaucracy that you, that you mentioned um, emphasizes that bureaucrats, who are basically non-elected government officials, um, since they're not profit-motivated, because bureaus by def- government bureaus by definition are not driven by profit, so they're non-profits, they measure success by the size of their budget and basically the number of employees, the number of subordinates that are under them. So their, their, their motivation is to increase their budget, uh, the, uh, increase their budget, yeah, which is a reflection of their, their power, uh, to create demand for their services, uh, which is directly connected to their budget, and to hire as many people as they can. So, of course, what happens is you get all this infighting, not because the Bush administration didn't try hard enough, but because the various groups, the bureaus and agencies, all want to have a position of power. I want to be in charge, because when I'm in charge, I get a bigger budget, I get to hire more people, and so on. So that's ultimately what happened. And, and this is not limited to Iraq, and it's not a function of a Republican administration. That's one of the things I, I want to emphasize, is the power of economics Takes or shifts focus from well, this is a democratic or a democratic or a republican issue. Instead, it's an issue of government and the ability of government to, to centrally plan the complex array of institutions that are required for liberal democracy. And really, failures are bipartisan. If you look historically, uh, Democrats and Republicans have failed. It's not that one's a better central planner than the other. They're both pretty bad at it. And you point to Somalia and Haiti as. Examples we've forgotten about conveniently, I think, in some of our optimism in the run-up to Iraq's reconstruction, where we've uh, – America tried to do something uh, 
from the top down and failed. That's right, in both cases. And these, and as I, I attempt to point out, these are the real relevant comparisons for Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, when policymakers and politicians say, well, we did it in Japan and West Germany following World War II, we can do it now. Uh, those are very poor comparisons because all the conditions that you and I discussed are, are largely absent in Iraq and Afghanistan. Somalia and Haiti, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, Somalia and Haiti are, um, are, are much better comparisons. And, and they're also better comparisons from the standpoint of the threat that, that the United States faces in the future, which is not from a nation state, a superpower, but from weak and failed states and, and kind of rogue groups within those, those weak mm-hmm. and failed states. That's, our, that's the main threat we face. And uh, Somalia and Haiti were, were both um, driven in some sense, and you can make the argument that they were driven by noble motivations. In Somalia, you have a civil war after the collapse of the government in the early 90s. And the U.S., well, originally we go in as peacekeepers with the United Nations. And uh, our goal is just to provide humanitarian aid and peace. We're not choosing sides. Uh, and, and, and eventually, that, and very quickly, that, and this is an example of mission creep, um, dealing in, in, in many senses with what we just discussed about bureaucracies. Bureaucracies want power. One way of getting power is to expand the mission. Right? Why stop at peacekeeping when we can try to democratize the country as well? Um, we should do, since we're here already, we should try to do more good stuff. Why, why waste the effort? Um, and, and basically what happens is when, when we deliver humanitarian aid to one of the, one of the sides of the, engaged in the Civil War, again, this issue of perceptions rears its ugly head. We bring humanitarian food, uh, water, and aid to one of the groups engaged in the war. The other side, the other warring party or parties, doesn't view it as humanitarian. They view us as helping their enemy. They don't care that it's humanitarian food, water, aid. They don't care. What they care about is you're assisting the, per- the, the group of people that we want to annihilate. Uh, so what do they do? Well, they don't view us as being neutral. They view us as, as assisting the enemy, and they shoot at us. And then the United States ran into a, a difficult uh, position. They had to either decide to shoot back and then no longer maintain neutrality or, or exit the country. Uh, and soon thereafter... Uh, the United States exited. Uh, of course, in, this, in Somalia, this is Black Hawk Down, the book, and then the movie. It um, captures the, um, you know, at least part of, of the failed effort. And, uh, you know, the, the international community continues to try to reconstruct Somalia to this day. The United States has been involved in many of those efforts, and they've all failed. They keep trying to design a central government and impose it upon the country, uh, and, it, and it keeps collapsing. It never gets off the ground. Uh, and Somalia is a perfect example of, of what happens when you try to top-down impose central institutions on, a group of, uh, on groups of people um, where it just kind of doesn't fit. What, um, what happened in Haiti? In Haiti, um, we, ba- we basically went in uh, because uh, Aristide basically was overthrown, uh, and we went in to uh, restore him to power, uh, which we did. We were able to restore him to power. Um, the, the military coup that threw him um, out, out of his position of power. Now, he was elected through um, elections. Um, of course, they were uh, a sham uh, in terms of fairness, uh, but, but uh, they were elections nonetheless, at least in, in name. Uh, and uh, he, he, he had been an ally um, or a friend of the United States, um, which, which, again, should, should uh, raise a flag right there because, of course, he was a very illiberal leader. Um, and, and not someone that we, we would consider good, uh, pretty much on any margin. I should just uh, mention, by the way, that throughout this podcast, we've been using the word liberal in the classical sense, meaning devoted to liberty, n- not the American modern political sense of the word. So when you say he was illiberal, you mean he was repressive and, that, uh, and yes. bad for freedom. 
That's exactly right. So democracy basically is just a mechanism for electing people. When, when, we, when Americans and, and Western leaders and policymakers often say, well, we care about democracy. Well, really, we care about liberal democracy. Uh, we care about protection of property, political and civil freedoms, um, and constraints on, on political rulers. We don't want um, the person that's elected through a democratic process to be able to exploit um, groups in society or, or, or the minority. We also don't want small groups of, of elites being able to exploit um, citizens. Yeah, so we of, want those constraints. One of the great benefits of the of the recent uh, passion for exporting democracy is, I hope, reminding people of what democracy's virtues are, and they're very small. Uh, democracy, in and of itself, as you point out, is not particularly good. Majority rule is not particularly good. It's republic and constitutional constraint that makes uh, democracies um, good for human beings. So Hamas is a democracy, and uh, not a particularly friendly. Uh, regime to its neighbors or its own citizens, although it certainly helps some of its own citizens, but it's not a, a free society. And and what we're trying to create in Iraq will not be what we call a democracy if it's merely majority rule. That's right. I mean, elections, even though the the elections we've held have been plagued by violence, that's the relatively easy part. Getting people to vote is not is not hard in itself. It's just organizing elections. The the much more difficult part is a, is establishing, as you point out, binding constraints on the people that actually win the election, um, and and that's ultimately what, what to the extent democracy has value. That's what it is. It's that it's just a form of collective decision making, but but that the outcome is good from the standpoint that they can't the winner can't abuse. Um, uh, abuse the people that voted or um, minorities. Or its political uh, rivals. I mean, one of the biggest problems, I think, with, with these failed democracies, as you point out, is that they have elections. But if they're not competitive because uh, opponents are afraid they'll be killed afterward, uh, either because the Constitution that is on paper won't be respected or because there isn't a Constitution or because there aren't any protections, uh, it's meaningless. That's exactly right. And, and, and Haiti is actually a perfect example of this because um, when, when Aristide came to power, there was um, rivals who didn't view him as legitimate and were willing to utilize violence to overthrow him, which they, they initially uh, were able to do. Um, and, and the United States went back in uh, under Operation Uphold Democracy was the name of the, the mission in, in Haiti. How eloquent. Uh, yes, what right. Year, what year are we in? Um, Oh, let's see. I think we went in '94, I believe, and uh, we were there until '96, if I remember correctly. Um, and um, yeah, so we go. We, rest- we restore Aristide to power, um, and we, we attempted to establish a uncorrupt uh, judiciary um, to establish the rule of law. We failed, uh, but we. We, these were the, the stated goals of the mission. Uh, and, of course, the proof of all this is that in 2004, so we, we exit in 96, uh, in 2004, Aristide is basically forced from power again and forced into exile. And, and what, of course, the first person, and this goes back to our point earlier about repeated interventions, the first person, of course, that he looks to, or the uh, country, I should say, instead of person, that he looks to for help is the United States, right? And he says, well, look, uh, He's expecting the United States to use his military to intervene to, to help protect him and, and retain his power. And, of course, at this point, the United States has other things going on, and they say, no, we, we will sit this one out, and he's forced from power. So even to the extent that, that that reconstruction, the one aspect that was successful, which you could even define as a success, which was restoring him to power, ultimately failed, because in February of 2004, he was forced from power, and he never returned. And the citizens there um, have been repressed for the longest time. There's no, inf- there's no investment in infrastructure. 
people produce at a subsistence level because it's a classic case of, of when you produce anything beyond the subsistence level, uh, the government basically bashes you over the head and takes your stuff. Uh, and, 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 you know, so, so this, this is, these Somalia and Haiti, they're more, they're more descriptive of our current state of affairs. And, and I think it, with this weak and failed states, one of, one of the problems we have is, is Westerners, not just citizens, but policymakers, have a fetish with nation states and governments. And, and somehow it's that if you don't have a, a government, any kind of government, then it's anarchy, it's chaotic, it's bad. But, but what's important to consider here is the relative um, alternatives, the, the feasibility set. And unfortunately, as, as we've discussed throughout, our, throughout this um, podcast, uh, in many cases, the, the feasibility set does not contain a liberal democracy. It doesn't contain an alternative where political leaders can be elected and then constrained in their actions. So what we get when we try to, to prop up either existing governments or impose them upon people is very bad outcomes. We might get democracy, but we don't get liberal democracy. We don't get those constraints. So there's a good argument, I believe, to allowing weak and failed states to completely collapse. Here you have governments that are basically a pure cost on their citizens. They provide little, if any, benefit to the citizens at large. Now, they do provide benefits to their cronies, to their family, to their close friends at the expense of citizens, but they don't really provide any, any benefits to their citizens, yet we insist on trying to prop them up. We restore them the power. We send them monetary aid. We send them uh, military weaponry. We use our military to, um, to, to prop them up or, or to, to give them military power. We fund guerrilla groups. Uh, and, and this is a terrible, terrible strategy if our goal is truly to make the citizens better off because basically what we're doing is empowering the worst governments in the world and we're allowing them to stay in power uh, longer than they should. And, and when a state's weak, failed, or it's collapsing, that's a good sign of something, which is, which is it's not providing goods and services that people want. Um, so, so the kind of the mindset of, well, if you don't have a government, Somalia being the case, of course, a perfect example because they have no central government, um, since the collapse of it in the early 90s, um, well, there, it's, Somalia is a case of anarchy. It's chaotic. We must fix it. That's, that's the viewpoint. Uh, but every effort to fix it has, has generated a worse outcome. So maybe the, uh, the alternative is that we don't fix it. We allow it to collapse and for the natural course of, of things to kind of evolve and emerge on their own. Um, and, and like most interventions, uh, it's motivated by the view that somehow we can do better. We can, we can intervene. We can pull the strings here and there and generate better outcomes. Uh, but, but when we recognize the limits on, on our knowledge of how to go about doing this, when we recognize unintended consequences, when we recognize these public choice issues that you raised before, I think we should be extremely skeptical of our ability to intervene and manipulate outcomes toward a desirable end. Well, that's a great place to stop, but I'm not going to stop. I want to go a little bit longer than we usually go because uh, there's a couple things we haven't gotten to that I think are important. First, I want to say something um, that would seem to suggest optimism for Iraq that people have – that people suggested in the early days. They said, well, Iraq is going to be a great democracy because unlike Somalia and Haiti, it's a highly educated uh, population and they've got uh, lots of, of market infrastructure. It's a commercial society and that's going to allow uh, a democracy to, to be successfully planted there. Why was that wrong? Um, well, you know, I would draw the parallel uh, to, to the whole debate over foreign aid. Now, I know over the last couple of months you've had some podcasts on this. You had Paul Collier on, I believe, in January, and then Bill Easterly on um, about a month ago, I think. And one of the big things in foreign aid, um, which is, of course, a form of intervention. It's a form of, of intervening to, to manipulate outcomes, um, military intervention being another form of, of foreign 
uh, intervention. But one of the big debates in the development literature is this idea of the factors that contribute to development. And basically, um, what, what happened, I mean, this is a very quick summary of the development slash foreign aid debate, is originally it was, well, they don't save enough. So we just need an injection of foreign aid to make up the savings gap, the investment gap. And once they have that, then we'll see convergence. And then that failed. So then they said, we know what the problem is now. We're giving them savings, but they don't know how to use it correctly because they don't have the investments in human capital. So what did the, what did the development community did? What did they do, excuse me? They start investing tons of money in human capital investments, education basically, schools um, and other forms of education. But that failed as well. So then the central question is, well, now we're, we're giving them lots of money to invest. We're, we're providing them with the opportunities for human capital or to invest in human capital. But why aren't we seeing convergence? Why aren't we seeing development? And, of course, the, the problem is, as, as Bill Easterly pointed out in his discussion with you, is this issue of incentives and information. Uh, in, in most cases, uh, the countries that receive aid don't have the incentive to use it correctly. Uh, they don't have the incentive to establish secure property rights. So that even if you invest in human capital, for instance, the opportunities to, to you after making that investment are minimal. They're constrained because there, in many cases there's a lack of property rights and, and the subsequent opportunities that emerge from those. On top of it, there's a fundamental information problem, which is the governments in these countries don't know how to allocate the aid correctly because there's no feedback mechanism. So even if they wanted to um, do it correctly, let's assume the best, that they, they actually face incentives to use aid in the best manner possible. They have no way of knowing how to actually allocate it because there's no market feedback mechanism. There's no prices uh, or profit loss uh, mechanism that allows them to know they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, and as Easterly points out in his work, we have to focus on what he calls the searchers, right? the low-level entrepreneurs at the local level instead of the top-down planners. So, so the, the fact that a society has, has a large investment in human capital, that they're educated, by itself does not mean anything. What matters... Um, because education is an, an, an input. You invest in capital, in this case human capital, so that you can utilize it to produce other stuff. But if you don't have those opportunities and institutions that allow you to produce that other stuff, human capital by itself is worthless. But Iraq had a commercial society under Hussein. They had buying and selling. They had people – had some level of entrepreneurship, I assume. Uh, why weren't – why hasn't the United States effort been able to leverage those associations uh, and the trust that I assume existed among some of those uh, – the merchants and people they dealt, they dealt with? Well, the interesting point is – and this goes back to the central planning point. There was entrepreneurship in terms of what you and I would consider, which is private initiative, individuals allowed to establish their own businesses and, and exploit – profit opportunities or perceived profit opportunities were minimal in Iraq uh, because, of course, the, the state played a key role in, in operating the economy. And if you read accounts when the occupiers first entered the country, you see you know, the, many of the workers in the factories kind of sitting there waiting for directives, right? And the United States is like, you know, uh, please begin producing. And they say, well, how much do I produce? What inputs do I use? Because they were so used to receiving directives instead of engaging in entrepreneurial thought on their own or, or figuring out the best way of doing things. And it wasn't their fault. They were just responding to incentives. Uh, and uh, so there was a lot, there was a black market, um, and there's where we saw some of the, um, a lot of activity. Uh, and of course, there, there was merchants in Iraq. Uh, but the big issue, of course, has been one of uh, security and stability. It's very hard for people to engage in trade when there's curfews, when you have to worry about being blown up um, just driving around on a daily basis. I mean, these are things, of course, you and I take for granted. We commute to work every morning. We can drive to the grocery store. And 
It's not that crime never occurs. Of course it does. But uh, most of us don't even think about it. We don't worry about it because there's a general environment of, 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 of stability and cooperation. And, of course, that the state's important in that because we have police, for instance, but the state can't be everywhere. So this goes back to the idea of belief systems and underlying values and ideals. Uh, for the most part, people in developed countries are cooperative uh, on their own. In other words, there doesn't have to be a policeman in every corner. And, and, and kind of the general point here... There can't I had, be. It's there can't be. That's exactly right. The state can't be everywhere. Um, and, and the way to think about this is a free society works best where the need for coercion is least. In other words, where people already kind of buy into the system and are willing to engage in cooperative behaviors, you don't need someone sticking a gun in your face telling you what to do. Uh, but, but where those beliefs and values are absent or they're not established at the, at the present moment in time, it doesn't mean they can't ever be established, but at the present moment in time, then that will require the continued use of force to get people to cooperate. And that's precisely what we see in Iraq. You need continued coercion and force to even maintain some stability of cooperation. I mean, what, 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 why do people praise the surge? Well, because they say the number of deaths is reduced. Well, you would expect when the number of troops increases, the number of deaths would be reduced, so that's not surprising. But it's really not a measure of any form of success. It doesn't mean there's any sustainable cooperation um, or agreement going on. It just means that there's more troops, so there's less crime at that moment in time. Uh, and really what we should care about is the long-term stability and, and cooperative behavior of individuals. I want to go back before we close uh, to talk about an issue that that is always uh, hovering over a book like this, which is that ex post it's always easier to look smart than ex ante. And I, you've done a really interesting job bringing economic ideas to bear on, on these political issues, the political economy of Reconstruction. The real question, though, is, is ex ante, before the fact. It's, of course, people before the fact said Iraq might not turn out great, but a lot of people were, were optimistic for reasons. You know, they, everybody cherry-picks the things ex ante that look good and, and look, ignore the things that look bad. And if you're a pessimist, you cherry-pick the things that look bad. I want to give you a challenge, uh, a historical challenge, and it's a little unfair, so if you want to duck it, just say so. <laughs> I, want to, I want to look go back to Germany, and I want to go back to the Reconstruction in Germany in 45 and compare it to the Reconstruction in 1919. So after World War I, uh, the Kaiser, the German leader at the time, was sent into exile. He was pushed from the scene, again, unlike uh, the case of the emperor in Japan like Hussein. He was pushed from the scene. A democracy was imposed, uh, the which became known as the Weimar Republic, uh, and it totally failed. Uh, it, it failed for all kinds of reasons, you know, some of which had to do with reparations and the economic burden of the reparations, right. the inflation that, that resulted from the, the German government's attempt to cope with that. That could be the main answer, but there's probably not the only answer. At the time, everybody said, look, Germany's an autocratic country. It's always been ruled by a king. The idea of trying to make it a democratic society is ludicrous. And they turned those people uh, who, who said so turned out to be right. Ex post, ex ante, there were people on both sides. Some said this was going to, you know, Woodrow Wilson was saving the world for democracy. He was one of the great exporters of uh, attempting to export democracy. And he, of course, helped create the seats for World War II. It's a rather remarkable, probably the single most destructive unintended consequences you could, uh, I think, point to in history. So very well-intentioned, perhaps, 
uh, their idea of self-determination at the time that in Germany totally failed, unraveled, and leads to arguably the worst uh, leader in human history, although he's got some competition from Stalin. Right. Um, and, and Mao Zedong, I'd say. But, but he's way up there. He's in the top three. Sure. So, so you have this situation that ex ante looks um, – again, there were arguments on both sides, but it, it turned out that it was a bad idea. It didn't work very well. World War II comes along as a result, partly, and or mainly, and the post-World War II era could make the same claims. You could say, look, Germany, it's never had this democratic tradition. Um, uh, Hitler is dead. There's no national figure to rally around. Um, true that there's this feeling of being a German, which, by the way, was less of a feeling in World War, at the end of World War I than it was by the end of World War II. But still, in both cases, you had that. And yet in World War II, it's this great success, ex-post. I want you to try to suggest ex-ante reasons that might have turned out that way and what that tells us about the future uh, as opposed to looking back at the past. Well, I mean, it, it's hard. and I'm not, I'm not trying to point your question because I'm going to come back to what I think the implications are momentarily, the fact that I can't answer it well. Um, and I don't think historians can answer it well either. And, and of course, you're right. When you look back at a, at a case, and, and we know what the successes are in hindsight, right? The past ones, that we, as long as we can agree on a benchmark, we can say these ones worked and these ones didn't. Well, let's look at why they worked and why they didn't. But at the time of either the time of action or ex ante before the fact, we don't know. And, and all of these cases, no, uh, there's no, at least in the case of the United States, where we went in and said, 100% certainty, this is going to work out the way we want. There was always doubts, and I, I just want to make that clear, especially in the case of Germany and Japan. In both cases, we were very uncertain what the outcome was going to be at the time that we, that we entered. Um, so, so it's hard to identify X, Y, and Z didn't happen in the, in the first one and happened in the second one. Those are the reasons why. It's very difficult to isolate those factors. So what's, what's the implication of that? Well, the implication, of course, is that we should be skeptical towards doing it. If we really don't know, and this is one of the kind of the themes in the book, if we don't know how to go about getting what we want, in general terms, we don't know. And we know what the characteristics of a liberal democracy are. If I, if I took a poll or I sat down with a group of average citizens and I said, what are the things that we really like about liberal democracy? I bet you we could come up with a list of broad characteristics, property rights, civil rights, political rights, rule of law, and we could come up with some others too, some general categories. But we don't know how to get them where they don't exist. We don't know how to create them from scratch or to manipulate existing institutions in a manner that generates those desired institutions. Yeah, we have so, the ingredient list. We don't have the recipe. That's so exactly right. It's a shortcoming. That's exactly right. And, and, and so what does that mean? Well, don't cook in the first place, right? Get out of the kitchen. Don't cook something you don't know how to do. But nonetheless, we, go up, we continue to go abroad attempting to create a set of institutions that we really don't know how to do very well. And, and then we get surprised or we're, we're surprised when we get bad outcomes. And, and the interesting question is, well, why do we see successes? That's kind of the interesting question, especially if you look at the historical record. So in, in, in Germany, you know, I mean, I've, I've read lots of different um, explanations for why it's successful. Some people point to the Marshall Plan. I don't think that tells us much because, again, monetary resources by themselves you know, don't do anything unless people can utilize them in a certain way. Um, some people say it was, you know, you get these broad kind of meaningless explanations like it was the right time in history or the right time for the people, and I'm not sure what that means. Um, so I, I don't think that's a very good explanation. Um, I, I mean, in some sense, it was just, I, I'm going to say, it was just a set of factors that kind of came together and allowed it, allowed it to work. And, and part of it, at least in, in, in the World War II, uh, post-World War II Reconstruction, is that Lucius Clay, the, the military general, in, in, over time became less and less directly involved 
he was more of an overseer as compared to a central planner. And, that, and then he allowed citizens to um, and, and, and do, do their thing, to literally engage in self-determination. And it's true the United States was overseeing it in the broadest sense, the, the Reconstruction, but, but there, was an emergent, uh, there was an emergent path that those institutions took, which allowed them to be sustainable. Um, so I think efforts to try to say, well, you know, one, two, and three, these factors, the reason why it worked here and not there, right, is we're the wrong way to think about it because we just don't, identifying those out of context is near impossible. Even more impossible is picking those up and then transplanting them to other countries. So when people say we used X amount of troops in Japan, but we only used Y amount in Iraq, see, this is why it failed, uh, is a meaningless way of looking at it. It's worthless because, um, you know, 10,000 troops in Japan is different than 10,000 troops in Iraq. Um. There was an insurgency, wasn't there, in the German countryside against the American occupation after nineteen after the end of World War II? Um, not not uh, ma- nothing major, nothing nothing on the on the scope of what we see in Iraq at all. It's an interesting um, thing uh, that you know you talk a lot about, and I think very well about the incentives. It's interesting that those incentives in in Germany and Japan, and I would add, in the, after the American Civil War as well, uh, did not uh, coalesce into a into a successful insurgency. Most people don't realize at the end of the Civil War, there was a real chance that the South would refuse to accept the peace. That, sure, the army had laid down its arms, but there were plenty of people with horses and guns that would, and and uh, the North let people keep their horses, which was a very controversial decision at the time. Uh, and they could have rallied in the hills and, and fought. And I think some historians wonderful book on it, April 1865 by Jay Winnick, but some historians suggest, I don't know if it's true, that it was Robert E. Lee's leadership that helped dis- end that possibility. Certainly he didn't lead it. He could have he could have chose to lead it. Uh, you could put the emperor then in Japan as a leader there. There's no counterpart, I don't think, in Germany, is there, of someone who said, let's, let's cooperate. Let's, no. let's, not, let's not keep fighting. No, no, there's not. Now, the U.S. did utilize existing political institutions to implement things. Um, you know, the Nazis, of course, um, as you pointed out, were, were terrible. But they did one thing they didn't do is they rose to power through the normal channels of, of politics. Um, and, and they didn't dis- completely dismantle those institutions. It's not like they destroyed them. They actually utilized them to rule, again, u- relying on coercion to do so. Um, so there was that factor, but there was none. But as you pointed out earlier in our discussion, uh, that can work in, in, one of, in both directions, too. So we have to be extremely careful. It's just, it's the, the, the takeaway here is not that if there's some national leader we can use, them, exactly like you were saying about Saddam Hussein, the, the argument isn't, well, if there's some national leader we can identify, we, we, can, ge- we can generate a successful outcome. Uh, because um, there, a national leader can be in charge for in, for many different reasons and can maintain power in many different ways. Um, and as, as you point out earlier, it's it's also a possibility that they can work against the reconstruction. And to the extent that they're actually legitimate, um, working against the goals of the occupiers can can generate a, a perverse outcome. Well, we're almost we're out of time, uh, but I wanted to clo- let you close with with one uh, one other thought. Uh, as you point out. One conclusion you can draw from from the historical record is uh, success is unpredictable. Uh, it's also low probability, and we don't know how to create it ex ante, so we should be highly skeptical. Uh, going against that are, is the inevitable desire of people to try to make the world a better place, and top-down uh, direction, whether it's economic or political, seems to be uh, seductive for people, and leaders will always find it useful to to, in, to invoke it. Um, what can we do then? If you're a skeptic about 
uh, military intervention, if you're a skeptic about political reconstruction, what would you recommend uh, the policies that we should pursue? What policy should we pursue if we want to make the world a better place? Sure. Well, well the position I take is, is one of non-intervention and, and unilateral uh, free trade. And basically, I'm extremely skeptical of the ability of the United States to, to impose these institutions. So that leads me to believe our default position should be one of non-intervention. We, shouldn't be, we should just get out of the business of trying to export democracy at gunpoint. The second part of, of the position I propose is, is unilateral free trade, which is precisely the opposite of how most people perceive our interactions with what we consider to be bad or illiberal regimes. Our first reaction, and that of politicians and policymakers, as well as most citizens, is to isolate them. You mentioned before Cuba. That's one example of, of this logic. Um, of course, we, we, we um, isolated Cuba during, as part of the Cold War strategy, um, and, and we do the same thing to Iran, to North Korea. We impose sanctions upon them. We uh, refuse to trade with them. And the argument I make is that trade... Uh, is a, va- a very valuable mechanism of, of change, and it's a voluntary mechanism. You offer, um, you offer the possibility of, of, of interacting and exchanging with members uh, and citizens of the United States, but you don't force other countries to do it. So instead of isolating those countries, instead of imposing economic sanctions, which, by the way, typically don't work. I mean, I don't, I don't know, even know if we have an example of economic sanctions that, that have ever generated regime change. Um, typically, yeah, well, they, they punish... Ju- I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, they generate a warm glow. Uh, yeah, so though it's, politi- it's politically powerful to say that we're playing tough with this regime. That's mainly exactly right, the warm glow uh, view of it. Uh, but typically they hurt the citizens of the country because they prevent um, goods and services from entering. And as you mentioned with Castro, it provides bad leaders with fodder to um, continue to speak out against the United States because they can just turn to their citizens and, and blame the evil United States for making them poor. Uh, and... Uh, so, so what, I, what I'm proposing is, is an alternative to that, which is contrary to standard logic of isolation, we should integrate. What better way to demonstrate to countries and, and citizens and individuals around the world the powers of Western liberal democracy and capitalism uh, and, and freedom than to actually allow them to exchange with us, to allow them access to our markets um, and, to, and to interact with, uh, with our citizens. Um, and, and the key here, of course, is that economics... I mean, excuse me, free trade uh, has significant economic benefits, and most economists agree that free trade is good in terms of increasing wealth. Uh, More often overlooked is that there's cultural benefits to free trade as well. Uh, And, of course, Tyler Cowen and George Mason has done wonderful work on this, the the benefits of cultural exchange and trade and how cultures become more diverse um, and integrated, and uh, they grow and emerge over time. Um, as, as trade occurs between cultures. Uh, so, so the argument I put forth is, is instead of trying to impose democracy upon people, lib- impose freedom, which of course is an inherent contradiction, people have to self-determine. It has to emerge from the bottom up. They have to decide they want freedom because, again, a free society works best where coercion is least. Uh, so we don't want to have to impose it and coerce it upon them. We want them to choose it. And ultimately, that means allowing them to decide whether they want it or not. And, and, and the argument is if we, if we grant them access to our goods and services, not only will they be better off economically, but also in terms of exposure to beliefs, values, and ideals which underpin uh, a free society. And, of course, this isn't a panacea. Uh, giving someone the option to trade with you doesn't mean that they will. Uh, it also doesn't mean that you'll get a good outcome. Uh, but, but it's my contention that non-intervention and free trade is, is the best alternative out of an admittedly imperfect set of alternatives. My guest today has been Christopher Coyne, 
professor of economics at West Virginia University, research fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, and the author of After War. Chris, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.